just a few weeks ago, our family had the opportunity to have this young woman in our house who's new to the country. She's from Malaysia and um, looking for work here in Canada. And it was a great conversation as we were able to learn a little bit about our culture and, and about um, the diversity that's there, the challenges that come with a convergence of people groups, a convergence of different cultural backgrounds, and we had a good conversation around that. And we also had a, a really interesting conversation around Christian faith um, as we uh, kind of asked her, as we said, you know, so the Christians that are in Malaysia, um, they're likely representative of all those different people groups. Like it's a bit of a mosaic, the Christian faith. And she said, yeah. And uh, predominantly the other, uh, the other religions represented there uh, still are uh, pretty much homogenous to the, the, the origins and the regions, the cultures from which they came. Uh, then uh, you've got this small contingent of Christians is kind of like a bit of a mosaic, kind of a melting pot, and um, kind of coming from everywhere. As we've been working our way through Mark's gospel, today we're going to come to chapter 4, and we're going to start in verse 26. Uh, and Jesus makes some comments about the kingdom of God, which invite us to imagine something very powerful. And it's that um, the kingdom of God, the grace of God, the saving work of God, it doesn't call us out of the unique distinctions of our culture uh, and into some sort of a homogenous Christian culture. There's no such thing as a homogenous Christian culture. What the grace of God actually does is it renews and it revives and it restores and it, uh, the glorious, unique distinctions uh, in every culture as with a, this beautiful mosaic of all of these different people groups all bending their knee to Christ, worshiping Christ, uh, and, and our unity is in that, is in him. And with our unity being in him, there's a great diversity in terms of what the family of God ends up looking like, and not only in this room, but also around the world. And so in Mark chapter 4, we're going to start reading in verse uh, 26, and this passage begins with Jesus inviting us to imagine powerful, global, cross-cultural spread of the kingdom of God. And then it moves, the passage moves from that, and it ends with Jesus moving in power in this unbelievable act that showcases that he is the Son of God. Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 26. And Jesus said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground and should sleep by night and rise by day, and the seed should come and sprout and grow, and he himself doesn't know how. For the earth yields crops by itself, first the blade and then the head, and after that the full grain in the head. But when the rain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And then Jesus said, To what shall we liken the kingdom of God, or with what parable shall we picture it? It's like a mustard seed, which when it's sown on the ground, it's smaller than all the seeds on earth. But when it's sown, it grows up and it becomes greater than all the herbs. And it shoots out large branches so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. And with many such parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. But without a parable, he did not speak to them. And when they were alone, he explained all these things to his disciples. And on the same day when the evening had come, Jesus said to them, Let's cross over to the other side. And now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was. And other little boats were also there with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat against the boat so that it was already filling. But, when, but Jesus was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him, and they said, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? 
And then they arose and, they re- and, and Jesus rebuked the wind. And he said to the sea, peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. But he said to them, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly. And they said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is God's word. Now, as I said earlier, the passage begins with uh, Jesus inviting us to imagine this global, cross-cultural spread of the kingdom of God. It ends with him calming the storm, an act that definitely showcases that he's the son of God. But first, let's look at all the descriptors Jesus uses at the beginning for the kingdom of God. When you read verses 21 through 32, he talks about it being like seeds that are sprouting and spreading. He talks about uh, the kingdom being like a mustard seed that in the beginning, it's really unimpressive. And in the end, it's majestic. Now, when you examine the expansion of the Christian faith since the first century, here's what you find. Because Jesus is anticipating this global spread of the gospel. He's prophesying it. And uh, here's what you find. You find that um, throughout history, you've got this small, unassuming, unimpressive beginning, but it did end in a shocking, a shocking global expansion that is continuing today. And the expansion of Christian faith, for those of you who are here this morning, and you may be searching, seeking, uh, exploring Christian faith, you've got some questions about it, skeptical. Here's what you can consider as you look, just look through history and examine in the first century how Christian faith exploded. Here's what you find. You find that Christian faith differs significantly from other world religions because if you look at the center of world religions where the majority of those who worship in world religions are, they're still very much homogenous to their places of origin. Whereas what history teaches us is that um, Christianity was predominantly Jewish. But then it wasn't long and then it was predominantly Greek. And it moved from Jerusalem through the Mediterranean to the northern parts of, uh, of, of, uh, of Rome. We find that it was later received by the barbarians in northern Europe, and then it became predominantly Western Europeans. And then after Christianity flowed from Western Europe, it moved to North America. But then after North America, um, if you look at Christian faith today and you say, where are most of the Christians in the world today in 2019? Uh, the answer is not North America. We're the minority by far. Most of the Christians in the world are in China, Latin America, and Africa. So when Jesus says, you know, the kingdom, how, he, Jesus says, how can I explain the kingdom? What is it going to be like? Well, it's going to be like this unimpressive mustard seed that's going to become this majestic thing that you just look at it and you wonder, how could this possibly come from this? And when you look at Christian faith, uh, it exploded in the way that Jesus said. Now, why did it do that? And again, I want to just say this for those of you here today. Who, who are really exploring faith and you have these questions about it. How is it that it exploded across all of these cultural barriers? How did that happen? Because in the first century, as scripture records, not only scripture, but also Roman antiquity, that the tomb was empty. So the Bible tells us the tomb was empty. The Babylonian Talmud tells us the tomb was empty. Roman antiquity tells us the tomb was empty. Tacitus wrote, you know, in the first few years of Roman history, he was writing like, hey, we've checked this thing for the time. When you read these ancient documents, they're kind of trying to suppress this empty tomb because all of history agrees it was empty. What the Bible teaches us is that there were 500 eyewitnesses. And as the eyewitnesses went global to their respective cultures, uh, that the, the message of the resurrection went global. And so... The reason I'm mentioning that 
is because it's very easy to just sweep Christianity with a broad brush and say, you know, these are fables. Preacher, you read a story about Jesus calming the sea, and these are fairy tales, and why should I even listen to this? And we're going to spend most of our time this morning on that section of, of Jesus calming the sea. But before I get to that, I wanted to back up and give you this, this background, because uh, here's the significance of it. A sociologist will, will tell you that people don't just change their worldviews overnight. It takes a long time, generations, for people to change their minds about significant things. Right? Today it's 2019. We're still trying to convince huge portions of the population that regardless of what your skin color is, uh, that you are a person of equal dignity. Right? We're still battling this. Right? We're still battling to say, well, if you're a man or a woman, you should deserve equal dignity. You should be treated with equal dignity. This is still a battle that's raging today. It takes a long time for people to change their minds about things. But what you find in the first century is that Jews, who for millennia were told that God would never condescend to be a man, overnight are worshipping a man. Greeks and Romans, who for millennia studied, uh, grew up with you know, uh, Platonic educations, studied their philosophy, overnight have abandoned millennia of thoughtful philosophy and are saying, we believe in the resurrected Christ. Overnight. How does that happen? And that's a problem if you're... That's a problem if you're a historian and a, and a sociologist to say, yeah, there were literally thousands and thousands and thousands of people across cultural barriers, across cultural lines, who abandoned their previous worldviews and started to worship at the cross of Jesus Christ. So I'm giving you that history to say that was the explosion that happened in the first century. And the, and the reason for it is the resurrection, the truth of the resurrection. Now, the reason I gave you that background is because as we move into this, this text about Jesus calming the sea... Uh, the temptation is going to say, well, should we just take this, you know, as a, po- as a poem? Is it metaphorical? Did he really do it? Could miracles really happen? Uh, should we just kind of skip over these kinds of stories? Is this fiction? Is it- no. This is a historical account. Richard uh, Bauckham is an Anglican scholar. He's an Anglican theologian and historian who has done studies on ancient literature. And one of the things that he gives us uh, through his research and through his work is that eyewitnesses will always record details simply because they remember them. Eyewitnesses, so ancient literature, ancient poetry, when you give details, it's because you're trying to advance the plot or you're trying to develop a character. But an eyewitness doesn't give details that advance the plot or develop the character. Eyewitnesses usually just, when you listen to our eyewitness, they're like, yeah, I was here and it was, this happened and I saw this thing in the corner. They just kind of give details based on what they remember. And so when you look at verse uh, 36, it says, and there were little boats around Jesus. And mentioning that there were little boats does nothing to advance the plot and it does nothing to add to the character of Jesus to mention there were just little boats around. But this is how eyewitness accounts are written. Right? This is what historians of textual criticism give us. Another example is later in a few verses, it says in verse 38, Jesus is asleep in the boat on a pillow. Why do we need that detail? You could actually remove both of those details and it hasn't changed the story, it hasn't changed the message, and it hasn't added anything to the character of Jesus. The reason the Bible mentions there was a few little boats around and Jesus was asleep on a cushion is because the eyewitnesses are just recounting this crazy thing and they're saying this is un- un- unbelievable uh, and they're just kind of remembering these things. That, that's an eyewitness account. It's not poetry. And so um, the, 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 uh, the Sea of Galilee, it's the lowest freshwater lake on the planet. 
lowest fr freshwater lake on the planet. It's like 2,000 or 209 meters below sea level. Front of the Sea of Galilee, north of the Sea of Galilee, you've got Mount, Mount Hermon. It's the tallest point in all of Syria. You've got the lowest point on the earth, the tallest point in all of Syria, cold front, warm front, massive storms. So sophisticated fishermen, uh, sailors, were used to navigating storms on the sea. They were used to it. This storm was so massive that the fishermen, the disciples, who had been in many, many, many storms, had to navigate storms all the time, Lowest, lowest flesh, freshwater lake on earth, highest point in all of Syria, warm and cold fronts all the time, storms all the time on the Sea of Galilee. So they were used to these storms. This one's so bad they think they're going to die. That's how, that's how bad it is. Experienced fishermen are like, we're going to die. And when you look at verse 38, they say something to Jesus. They say, don't you care? And I think this is a good point for us to kind of see ourselves in, in the narrative. God! Look at my life. I'm struggling. I'm suffering. I'm sinking. And you're not doing anything about it. Are you asleep? Do you care? And the disciples' premise is the same as our premise. It's kind of the same. of, And it's the wrong premise. But the premise they had, which is the common premise most of us have, if you're here this morning and your faith is in Jesus Christ yet, this is probably the premise you have about God. And here's the premise. If God is a God of love, then bad things shouldn't happen. If he's powerful and he's loving there shouldn't be storms because any loving good God would make sure there were no storms. The disciples are like, don't you care? And so that's the argument. <clears throat> How can God be all powerful and all good if he lets bad things happen? Isn't he powerful enough and good enough to fix everything? Well, here's a couple things to consider. Here's the first thing. If God is big enough to fix absolutely everything in the world, if, if the God you're conjuring is big enough to fix absolutely everything in the world, he's also big enough to do things in a way that you don't understand. You can't have it both ways. You can't say, well, God should be able to fix everything in the world, but also I sh he should also be so small that I understand everything about him. That's a non-secular. That doesn't make any sense. So I think that's the first thing to consider, is that if there is a God, he's going to be far beyond our comprehension. Here's the second thing. The second thing is the Bible says he is going to fix everything. So for those of you who are really wrestling with the injustice in the world, why doesn't God fix everything? What is it? He is going to fix. The scriptures are clear. He's going to fix everything. Here's the thing, though. If God needs to fix everything in the way that you think he should fix it, in the timing that you think he should fix it, in the manner in which you think it should be fixed, who is God, then, in that scenario? Right? So those are two things, I think, to consider about that argument. And what this text teaches us is that he does allow those that he loves to go through storms. He does allow it. He's, allowing, he's, he's having a power nap right now in the middle of a storm. He allows it. He's with us in our storms. He's loving us through our storms. And the promise of the gospel is the day is coming when he's going to calm every storm. I'm going to get to that later. So let's look at what happens when Jesus wakes up. Because I took a lot of time there. He's saying, why did he spend so much time talking about the difference between poetry and historical literature and details? It's, it matters. It matters if you're going to grapple with this text. You're not just going to go, oh, Jesus calmed the storm. That's nice. Flip. So watch now. What happens when Jesus wakes up? See, if, if the miracles in the Bible, which is really hard for us to grapple with, let's face it, grappling with miracles. Okay, but if the miracles in the Bible was just ancient poetry, they would read like ancient poetry. But when you study ancient poetry, what you discover is they, they don't read like ancient poetry. They're not described in a po poetic way at all. They're described in a matter-of-fact way. What happens when Jesus wakes up here is not poetic. 
It's very matter of fact. And it's important for you to understand that. Because the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these are historical works of, of given to us as they wrote down what happened. It's not, it's not poetic literature. The book of Revelation is apocalyptic and poetic. There's elements of it that are historical. It starts out saying, hey, there's these seven churches. You can go visit that, that region in Turkey. It's a real place. But then Revelation goes off and it spins into apocalyptic literature. These, record, these accounts of Jesus, it's not poetry. It's history. Watch what he says when he wakes up. Well, I'll show you. It's unbelievable. He wakes up and he says to the sea, peace be still. That's it. That's all. That's how, the, that's how it records it. And Jesus awoke. And he said to the storm, peace be still. That's all you get. Now, that's not how ancient poetry reads. For those of you who are critics of the scripture, I don't know, can we believe it? That's not how ancient poetry reads. If you read Hesiod's Theogony, which is ancient poetry, the origin of the gods, and you start reading in line 662, where Zeus is going to destroy the Titans, when Zeus uses his power, you find phrases like bolts of lightning, thick and fast, indescribable supernatural flames rising into the divine sky in such a fashion that they dazzle the strongest eyes. That's how Hesiod's Theogony reads when, God, when Zeus is using his power. Here's how the Bible reads when God is using his power. And Jesus got up and he said to the storm, peace be still. That's not how you write poetry. That's how a fisherman records history. Now, it's unbelievable. Verse 39, the wind dies down. The water becomes like glass immediately. Poof. That's not normal. Okay? If, wind, if there's a massive storm and the wind stops, the inertia and the momentum of the surging sea is going to rage for a long time after the wind is gone. But when Jesus wipes the sleep from his eye and says, peace be still, it's eerily quiet. It is dead calm. Silent. It's unbelievable. Jesus just wakes up and shushes a hurricane. He shushed it. <laughs> no lightning bolts thick and fast. No indescribable supernatural flames rising to the divine sky, you know, which, with such a fury that they just dazzle the strongest eyes. None of that. He just wakes up the king of creation, exercising his power over creation by telling the sea to be quiet like a toddler that's having a temper tantrum. That's how this plays out. Jesus says that's enough. In the Greek, the phrase said to the sea, this is how the Greek language says it, it's, it's kai epente thalase. And that phrase there, kai epente thalase, is not ranting and raving and yelling. Kai epente thalase in the Greek is to say something with such authority with it, that it definitively ends an argument. That's what it means. So Jesus wakes up, he wipes his sleep from his eye, he looks at the raging storm like a toddler that's having a temper tantrum, and he speaks with such authority, he just ends the conversation. That's enough. Okay. That's what happens here. It's amazing. And then, after the sea becomes like glass, verse 40, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, why are you so fearful? And he says, where's your faith? And for, you see, this is really encouraging for us because Jesus doesn't, he's not concerned about their, how weak their faith is. He wants to know where it is. 
This isn't about strong faith. This isn't like, if you have enough faith and all the storms in your life are going to blow away, can I get an amen? That's not what's happening here. Jesus is not like, you just, your faith is there, it just needs to be more. No. Jesus says, where is it? This is the question that he asks. He says, where is your faith? And, and when it says that, when Jesus says, why are you so fearful? In the Greek, he doesn't use the, the word phobos, why are you so fearful? He uses delos. And, and delos in the Greek means uh, you've lost confidence. And then after he says, you've lost confidence in me, guys, then he goes on to say, uh, where is your faith? Akete. And akete in the Greek means to hold on to it. So when Jesus turns to the disciples, he says, why have you lost confidence in me? And why have you stopped holding on to me in the storm? I'm supposed to be your anchor in this storm, but you've let go, and I don't know what you're holding on to now, but it's not me. So what Jesus is provoking here is not, you know, how much faith do you have, but where is it? This is what he's primarily concerned about. It's the location of the faith. And so this is encouraging for us because whether you're a person of mature faith or immature faith, strong faith or weak faith, we all get the same strong Christ. Jesus wants to know where your trust is located and what you're holding on to. One time, I told the story before, but one time I was cliff jumping as, when I was a teenager with Susan and some friends at Tobermory, jumped in the water, Susan jumps in, the friends jump in, they swim to the shore. I jump in, I can't get out because I'm not a very strong swimmer. The waves are pushing me back against the rocks and it's too deep for me to touch and I, I can't get out. And so I just keep getting knocked back, knocked back. I'm like, I'm going to drown, I'm going to die, I'm running out of energy. Susan finally realizes, man, Paul hasn't come around, so she swims back out. Susan's a great swimmer, she was on the swim team all through high school. Susan swims back, sees me there, I'm, I'm about to die. She sticks her leg out. I grab her little ankle and she swims me back to shore. Now here's the thing about that. It wasn't about how much, you know, this is the picture Jesus is provoking. It's not how much faith do you have, how well do you understand all this stuff that's going on. I wasn't like, you know, prove to me you're able to do this. You know, I need the proof that you won the swim meet for the backstroke. Show me that newspaper article again. I need to read that and I need to verify you're qualified to do this. I need a physics lesson. How are you able to pull me through these waves? I just need to understand. No, Jesus is like, you don't need to, what you need to understand is you're drowning, I'm saving grace. That's what you need to understand. And it's not that Christian faith is not some blind leap where, you know, we just check our brains and our intellect at the door. I hope, for those of you that have been a Redeemer for any length of time, I hope I haven't communicated that, that we're not thoughtful about our faith and why we should believe it. But what Jesus is provoking here is, listen, this isn't about how well you understand things. This is about the location of where your trust is. And so... This is how this text plays out. Guys, you've, you've seen me heal the sick. I've cast out demons. I've miraculously cured diseases. Yeah, sure, I'm having a power nap and a hurricane, but you're just not going to ever understand me, so don't worry about it. You just need to trust me. And you would think that the account would play out like this. You'd think it would play out like they were afraid, Jesus calmed the sea, and now they're relieved. That's not what it says. They were afraid, Jesus calmed the sea, they're more afraid. Did you notice that? That's what the text says. But I would think, though, it would be like, I was afraid, he come to see. Ah, no. Why? Why do they do that? Why are they more, why are they more afraid? It says they were exceedingly afraid. Right? I've given you enough Greek this morning, so I'm not giving you any more, because most of you don't care about it. But they, they're, they're freaked out. 
Why? Well, here's why. Ancient, ancient cultures, they respected the sea. They feared the sea. They had a sense of awe about the sea because the sea was a place of untamable, unstoppable power. The disciples were fishermen who respected untamable, unstoppable power. But when Jesus shushed the hurricane, they had to rethink reality because it wasn't the sea that was untamable. It was Jesus that was untamable. It wasn't the sea that was unstoppable. It was Jesus who was unstoppable. And that's terrifying. Because if the wind and the sea relate with reverence to Jesus and they're in awe of Jesus and they subside and they bend their knee and worship to Jesus because he's God, then it stands to reason that all humanity should relate with reverence to Jesus and live in awe of Jesus and bend our knees and worship to Jesus because he's God. But we don't. Even those of us who've placed our faith in Christ and are saved, we do and then we don't. That's why we confess our sin every week. Because we do relate to him like he's God, but then we don't. And this is, the, this is the dilemma. Sin has been our nemesis, right? Ever since the Genesis. And so the human condition is such that we don't want an untamable God. We want a tameable God. We're not comfortable with a God that we can't tame, that we can't control. We need to be God, or we need a small, tameable version of God that we can control. And sadly, that is the state, if we look broadly speaking, I paint with a broad brush here this morning, but broadly speaking, if you look at the theology being taught across Canada, this is the tone. Oh yeah, preach, preacher. Just don't you dare say anything or read anything in that Bible that contradicts what I think, that contradicts what I want, that contradicts what I believe, and you'll be okay. And that, broadly speaking, is theology in Canada. We don't want an untamable God. We want a small, impotent, moldable, tameable God that already agrees with everything that we think, that already agrees with everything that we want, that already agrees with everything that we believe. That's what we want. So the disciples realize there is something that's untamable here and it's not the sea, it's Jesus. Now, here's the good news. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus did not come to unleash his power on you. He is a God of untamable power. You should stop and think about it this afternoon that this isn't poetry that I'm reading, but this is history. He is a God of untamable power, but he did not come to use his untamable power on you. He came to lay down his power and die for you. Jesus Christ is not only the king of untamable power, he's the king of untamable love. And the disciples were afraid that they would die under the waves of the sea. But Jesus came to die under the waves of our sin on the cross. Though while on the cross there was a great storm, the sky turned dark in the middle of the day. It was like a bruise, like the heart of heaven itself was wounded. And on the cross, Jesus took our place in the ultimate storm. He knew God's wrath so that you and I will only ever know God's mercy and grace. Jesus Christ was abandoned in his storm so that you and I will never be abandoned in ours. And now, because of his perfect life, his atoning death, his divine resurrection. Our king, who came in untamable love, he will come again. 
And when he comes again, he's coming in untamable power. And when he comes in untamable power, his return will calm every storm. Jesus will break brokenness. He will destroy darkness. Every good thing will be restored. Every sorrowful thing will be eradicated. Just like the wind vanished, suffering in every, every form will vanish. Just as the waves fell into silence, the waves of our grief and sorrow will fall into silence as he wipes every tear from every eye. When the king returns, he's going to calm every storm and death itself is going to have a funeral. May the spirit and the word renew your heart and your mind so that you face each day, church, with an ever-increasing sense of rest and peace and humble confidence. Because by grace and faith, you are united to the one who shushed the hurricane. Let's pray.